Before we dive into this episode of HRD Masterclass, I'd like to take 30 seconds to share the exciting news that we're now seeking sponsors for Season 5 to release in 2024. This is a wonderful opportunity to support the podcast series and also share your message with 3,500 HRD listeners around the world. Sponsorship options cost just $750 and $600 per episode, and for full details, contact D-A-R-R-E-N at allbypodcast.com. Right, let's start the episode. Oftentimes, what we might consider unethical is really the result of not thinking clearly, of being pressured or feeling pressured to take action, of, of having outside expectations. Welcome to Human Resource Development Masterclass, the podcast series from the Academy of Human Resource Development, the organization that leads HRD through research. I'm your host, Darren Short, and throughout this second series, I'll be joined by leading authors, researchers, and scholars to explore the fundamentals of HRD and how those are changing in the 2020s. Our focus for this episode is ethics in HRD, and we'll be looking at what we mean by the term ethics, the most common and challenging ethical situations faced by HRD professionals, the role of ethical standards, how HRD professionals can prepare for ethical issues, and much more. To help me, I'll be joined by three leading scholars. Dr. K. Peter Kuchinka, Professor Emeritus in the Department of Education Policy, Organization and Leadership at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Dr. Claritha Hughes, Professor of Human Resource and Workforce Development at the University of Arkansas, and Dr. Khalil M. Durrani, Associate Professor and Program Chair for the Educational Human Resource Development Program at Texas A&M University. In the first part of the episode, I'll chat one-to-one with each of them. Those one-to-one conversations are brought to you with the help of the generous support of our sponsor, the Human Resource Development Online Program at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. Then for the second part, Peter, Claritha and Khalil are together to explore their shared interest in ethics in a group conversation that's brought to you with the help of the generous support of our sponsor, the Educational Human Resource Development Program at Texas A&M University. All of the content you'll hear in this episode was recorded during September and October of 2021. Right, let's dive in to meet our guests. Here in the first section of the episode, I'll meet one-to-one with each guest. This section's brought to you thanks to the sponsorship support of the Human Resource Development Online Program at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. HRD Online at UIUC offers a fully online and top-ranked Master of Education degree. The program prepares individuals to succeed in the HRD discipline as a practitioner. Graduates of the EDM in HRD Online typically serve as designers, evaluators and managers of HRD programs across a wide range of organizational settings both nationally and internationally. For more information, visit their website at go.illinois.edu slash HRD online. My first guest for the episode is Dr. K. Peter Kuchinka, 
Professor Emeritus in the Department of Education Policy, Organization and Leadership at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. A native German, he holds a doctoral degree from the University of Minnesota in Work, Family and Community Education and Strategic Management. His research interests include the role of work in overall life design, self-directed career behaviors, and cross-cultural differences in career preparation and development. Peter has published over 150 scholarly articles and book chapters and presented his research at more than 50 national and international education conferences. He has served on the board of directors for the Academy of Human Resource Development, as Editor-in-Chief for Human Resource Development International and President of the University Council for Workforce and Human Resource Education. Peter has been recognized with 25 major research and service awards, including the Outstanding Scholar Award from the Academy of Human Resource Development, as well as being inducted into the International Adult and Continuing Education Hall of Fame. Hi, Peter. Welcome to the Human Resource Development Masterclass podcast. It's great to have you here in our episode focused on ethics in HRD. It's good to be here with you, and I'm, I'm really pleased to be able to talk about this topic. I think it's central to our profession, and I'm very pleased that I was invited to, to talk about this topic. Well, it's great to have you here, and I, and I was thinking about where's a good place to start, and I'm thinking perhaps it's to explore how you first became interested in the questions of ethics in the context of HRD? Well, in a sense, I've always been interested in the interplay between individuals and organizations, but also in the dynamic and the relationship between organizations and the wider society, and specifically in sort of the rules that govern these relationships. What can employees reasonably expect from their employers? What obligations do organizations have? What are the responsibilities of an organization and its employees towards the wider community, society, or even the global community at large? And I think ethics helps us think through these dynamics. I come to this topic not as a philosopher, although I have some academic training in philosophy, but from HRD and workforce development practice. And an example might be helpful here. Early in my career, I had the opportunity to work for a well-known HRD consulting firm that was engaged in a leadership development project with a large national brewing company in South Africa. At that time, in the early 1990s, South Africa was under apartheid rule, and the U.S. State Department had issued an embargo, essentially barring all business transactions between the U.S. and South Africa and that was intended to force political change in, in that country. Um, my task was to do statistical analysis of a large data set, a detailed inventory of the leadership and supervisory skills, experiences, and interests of Black employees at the brewery. Well, of course, under apartheid, none of the Black employees were in any uh, supervisory, let alone leadership position. But our consulting company saw this leadership inventory as an important step to develop down the road training and skill building programs once apartheid had ended so that the brewery had a leg up on its competition when it came to increasing racial diversity among its cadre of supervisors and leaders. And rather than joining the boycott, 
my company saw it as an opportunity and also an obligation to think ahead and lay the foundation for the time after the political change. This short example opens up so many ethical questions. Was it right to engage with the South African company in face of the State Department embargo? Did we have an obligation to prepare the company for the time after the political change? Was it fair to the employees to raise expectations that they might have access to advancement, not knowing when apartheid might end? What about the rights of incumbent white supervisors who might be affected by the increase in diversity among the supervisory staff? Did the brewery see this just as a business opportunity to be first to market with workforce diversity? Or was the decision driven by a deeper commitment to social justice and so on? And I would argue, Darren, that every HRD project, large or small, raises this and a host of other ethical questions about rights and wrongs, about responsibility and obligation and fairness and justice. However, we are not used to conceive HRD projects along these dimensions. Instead, we are typically very, very busy getting the project underway and completed. We are socialized to speak and think of HRD in terms of efficiency and effectiveness, output and performance, business outcomes and returns on investment in training or other interventions. And while these dimensions are clearly important, ethical questions are always just under the surface. And I firmly believe that as a field, we stand to gain much by a greater understanding and a greater focus on the ethical dimensions of our profession. So really interesting example there, Peter. And I, I, I think it probably takes me to a, a quite foundational or fundamental question, which is what we mean by the term ethics. You've, you've referenced ethics multiple times during that answering that first question, but I'm interested in like, what's meant by that term and how is it distinguished from similar terms like morals or values or principles? So ethics can be distinguished from values and principles and morals by a more reasoned and well thought out way of thinking, a system of thinking about values and priorities and things that are good and adequate and not so good, not so adequate. Rather than individual values of this or that, ethics is made up of systems of thinking about right and wrong. And these systems can be pretty complicated and complex. We tend to think of ethics as something esoteric, something heady, difficult, or perhaps impractical and elitist. But organizations, as well as communities and families, exist to accomplish things that are beyond the capacity of an individual. They are, you may say, webs of relationships. And the, uh, these relationships are focused on cooperation and coordination to get the work done. And ethics helps us think more deeply about how to design good, adequate, and defensible rules of the road, so to speak, that outline expectations, rights, and responsibilities needed to let social entities do what they need to do. Like so many of us, I've always been attracted to our field because of its promise to improve, to make things better for individuals, organizations, communities, societies, and so on. But notions of progress, 
improvement and change are always directional and intentional. They're based and express desired ends. What is it that we want to accomplish when we implement this intervention? What is the end goal of providing training and um, other types of HRD interventions? Development towards what end? An article that I wrote early in my academic career. And I think answer to these deeper questions reveal underlying values. And so we need a way of thinking that allows us to evaluate our needs, desires, wants, goals, values, and so on. We all know that we have multiple stakeholders in organizations, that HRD interventions can have both positive consequences, but oftentimes uh, they are losers. They are unintended consequences and things we did not foresee. So we're dealing in a conflictual area of practice. And I think it's one of the key ideas by thinking in more deeper way about HRD is to understand that HRD is not a unitary single field, but is embedded and embroiled in all the conflicts and opportunities of a complex social entity that we call organization. And ethics, and especially applied ethics, wrestles with these questions. It provides a set of ideas, concepts, and theories and frameworks to help us work through these questions of right and wrong, rights and responsibilities, priorities and trade-offs. Oftentimes, not in the way of providing definitive answers, but as a way of helping us evaluate various alternatives and perhaps to come up with ways that are better than some alternative, solutions that are adequate and defensible if we think about them a little more deeply. Is there a single shared view of ethics that would have, say, a universal concept or universal standards of right and wrong that are shared within society or within a community? The world over, we can point to a large number of shared basic values, the importance of family, of welfare for the young, of care for the next generation. And research is beginning to tell us that there are five basic personality characteristics that apply to everyone, the big five. And we are beginning to understand leadership attributes that are universal. For example, Bob Hamlin's work on universal leadership competencies. While cross-cultural differences matter in our behavior, we should be mindful of the undivided nature of our species when it comes to many underlying values and standards of ethics. And these are expressed in a number of highly visible and important projects. For example, the United Nations, World Bank, and the International Labor Organization, the UN Sustainable Development Goals, and the ILO's Decent Work Project that claim to set expectations for work the world over. Your question, Darren, also points to an important point or argument that's often raised in this context, the notion of value relativism, which says that since we often disagree on what we value and what actions to take based on those values, we disagree on what is right and wrong, all opinions are essentially equally valid. This stance is very common, but it's really based, I think, on the misunderstanding a misunderstanding of the right of individuals to hold certain values on the one hand, 
and the adequacy or cogency of a given stance. A related idea is that while everyone is entitled to their opinion and beliefs, certain beliefs are better grounded and provide greater traction. For example, favoritism in promotion in an organization does occur quite often, but we can evaluate arguments for and against this practice and determine if in the long term, some sense of fairness in promotion decisions might not be better suited to move the organization forward. We have not one, but several large frameworks for thinking about values. The most common one perhaps would look at the consequences or utility of an action and determine right and wrong. What brings, one might ask, on balance the greatest benefit to the greatest number of people? How can we minimize bad outcomes and maximize good outcomes? The problem with utilitarianism, which is widely shared, of course, is that it might create winners and losers. So we take into account the fact that some individuals or some party may lose while others win because in the, in the end, we're maximizing the benefit of the largest number of people. Immanuel Kant's golden rule is a clear alternative. Kant's famous dictum, act so as if you act towards others, as you want others to act towards you is a universal rule. In a stronger uh, form, it says act so that the maxim of your action can become a universal law. So here we have a fundamental standard that is not judged by its outcome, but it stands for itself. In a sense, it claims to be absolute. Always act towards others as you want them to act towards you not only if it brings you benefits or good outcomes. The preamble to the US Constitution, the notion of inalienable rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, the principles of the French Revolution, and the UN Declaration of Human Rights are additional examples here. A third and perhaps even more important tradition for HRD is found in the ethics of justice and fairness. Here, the writing for, of John Rawls is, again, critically important. Rawls defines justice as fairness and develops in his um, uh, groundbreaking work, uh, Theory of Justice from 1971, very specific procedural rules for allocating rights and responsibilities. And these include the original position, the veil of ignorance and others. Perspective taking, for example, as well as some of the key principles and practices in organization development follows this thinking of justice as fairness. We often use this approach in OD interventions. For example, I was an external consultant to a group of higher education leaders to examine the current process of annual performance evaluations. And that process had received much dissatisfaction and complaints. After many hours of discussion and review of competing models, the breakthrough in our group came when we used a role play among the leaders. And we asked them to play act what a really good evaluation process might be like. So these leaders who were used to administer performance evaluations were placed in the position of actually receiving one. And then asking what, what would you like to have happen during a performance evaluation? And that experience, more than the intellectual discussion, 
uh, led to let us see the potential of a much more personal and involved way of talking about people's work, about their accomplishments, goals, and dreams. The ethical thinking shifted from viewing employees as recipients of some process to one of looking as employees as equal and active partners in this process. So very much an underlying process in line with what we know from adult learning theories. As you've talked about ethics in general, you've referenced a few times HRD and OD. So I'm wondering if now is the right time to to look at what role you see ethics playing within HRD. This, this again, is, is a broad question. But I think, first of all, we should point to the code of ethics that was developed and issued by the Academy of HRD. And there are similar documents in related fields like organization development. And these codes of standard codes of ethics reflect behavioral norms for OD and HRD and its practitioners. But how exactly to address competing interests of stakeholders is a difficult matter in our field. First of all, I think it's important to recognize that different stakeholder groups, such as employees, owners, managers, the local community, and so on, have common but also divergent interests. And how to address and reconcile these divergent interests, if that's at all possible, uh, is far from clear. At minimum, I think we need to acknowledge that HRD is far from a unitary practice, but engaged in what our colleague Tara Fenwick has called HRD's dance with capital. That is to say that HRD, with its focus on individuals and organizations, should not be viewed as a neutral technology, as we have talked about our field in the early days, but that HRD always operates within the push and pull of competing priorities, interests, viewpoints, and so on. At the same time, I think it's important that we live in a pragmatic world of decisions, actions, deliverables, timelines. And decision makers often satisfies, that is, they satisfy multiple, often competing interests and meeting multiple demands rather than maximizing single goals. But all of us individuals and organizations are work in progress and all of us have feet of clay, if you will. In a project I led a few years back, we evaluated a global leader development program for a major pharmaceutical company. The program met all the criteria of excellent design and implementation to a T. It had an active governing board, wonderful training processes and a well-developed selection process. The program program completion was a requirement for promotion and individuals completing the program typically receive their promotion and assignment as regional or country manager within a short time after completing. And typically they performed well on the new task. From time to time, however, the company hired managers from the outside, those coming from competitors who had worked in similar country or regional leadership roles. And now there was a discontent among those going through the regular process of application, selection, and training who suspected favoritism and perhaps even nepotism. So how could we balance the clarity of procedural justice that we had developed, the clarity of process, with the opportunity to bring in high-performing outsiders? 
was the organization's obligation towards honoring the process that it had set up or take advantage of the opportunity to bring in high-performing outsiders to violate the process or go outside the process for uh, adding talented employees that perhaps were not available inside. And in this example, our first step was awareness raising, uh, creating awareness of the conflict that this has caused, because in practice, uh, the awareness and open discussion of this issue was not present. Uh, and we try to understand the underlying dynamics and create sensitivity to the reaction of these managers, help leaders understand why it was a problem that some individuals were hired outside of the normal training process, the normal training pipeline. Next was a consultation exploring the situation, clarifying the cases when outsiders would come in and brainstorming with everybody what better ways of handling the situation might be implemented. The result was a decision to provide advanced and clear information about outside hires, their qualifications, and a way to connect the newcomers to the managers in training. So very much an OD approach with process consultation, value clarification, perspective taking, and joint decision making based on recognizing legitimate perspectives of employees, as well as the interest of the organization to bring in high performing talents from the outside. When you think about uh, HRD practice, are there specific areas of that practice where you see there's a connection to ethics? It won't surprise you that, that I'm of the opinion that ethics is infused in virtually everything that we do in organizations, in all the different specializations, in all the business functions, including HRD. But first of all, I think it's important to position ethics in the context of the free market competitive economic system in the US. This is not to say that ethics is subordinate to economics, only to say that in practice, organizations are bound by the rules of a capitalist system, which in itself is based on a system of values such as private property, self-interest, competition, and the role of the market. And economic and market pressures and opportunities are the primary drivers of organizational action and decision. HRD needs to play by these rules first and foremost to be valued as a business partner. Second, we have very specific rights and obligations due to our status as a profession. These are the ethics of professional HRD practice, and are expressed in broad terms by the HRD standards, the OD standards, and similar documents. They include the obligation to work in the interest of the client, to preserve confidentiality, not to overpromise, to work within the bounds of our expertise, not to falsify data, and so on. A third layer is the role of HRD with respect to organizational policies and practices such as promotion, discipline, health and safety, working conditions, work design, and so on. In OD terms, we call these design elements, and HRD often has a role as change agents. There's plenty of opportunity to lead for more adequate solutions, and these need to include value clarification, role-taking, and attention to ethical principles that the organization 
person wants to uphold. Fourth, there are employee behaviors that reflect, for better or for worse, ethical and sometimes unethical behaviors. These might include leadership practices, abuse of office, shirking, theft, absenteeism, lying, withholding information, many others. While these rise to the surface, interventions are needed, such as training, coaching, feedback, referral, and others. Here again, we should not only engage in addressing the immediate problem, but design solutions based on deeper understanding of the ethical dimensions and concerns that are involved. And finally, there is the role of ethics and strategic planning and strategic implementation. This involves the positioning and role of the organization in the wider context towards customers, competitors, the industry, and the wider community, the environment, and perhaps even the globe. Organizations are such important players and such powerful players. Uh, they have the ability to do much good, but also much harm. And here HRD can and should raise ethical dimensions of strategic decisions and options, not to distract from legitimate business objectives, but to move the organization towards a more solid foundation in its relationship to the wider community and society. Well, Peter, thank you so much for your time today. I've really enjoyed our conversation on ethics. You're very welcome, Darren. Okay, so stay with us and uh, we'll have you back later in the episode for our group conversation with Claritha and Khalil. But for the time being, thank you so much. Good. I look forward to it. Thank you, Darren. My second guest for the episode is Dr. Claritha Hughes, Professor of Human Resource and Workforce Development at the University of Arkansas. Her research interests include valuing people and technology in the workplace technology development, diversity intelligence, learning technologies, and ethical and legal issues. She has published numerous articles in peer-reviewed journals and books, and has authored or co-authored 13 books. Claritha is a book proposal reviewer for Sage, Emerald, IGI Global, and Palgrave Macmillan. She has a National Science Foundation Research in Formation of Engineers grant. Her PhD is from Virginia Tech, Master of Textiles from North Carolina State University, BA from Clemson University, and MBA from the University of Arkansas. Hi, Clarissa. Welcome to the Human Resource Development Masterclass. It's great to have you here in our episode focused on ethics in HRD. Hello, Darren. Thank you for having me here with you. I truly appreciate you thinking of me when it comes to ethics in HRD. When I spoke with Peter, we started off by talking about how he got interested in ethics. And so I thought that could be a good place for us to start too. I became interested in ethics when I first started working in industry. I met different employees in the workplace. I started out as a management trainee. And as I was learning and observing and receiving training and development on management and leadership, I realized that there was a distinct difference between what you're trained to do and how you actually interact with employees in the workplace. And once I saw the distinct difference, I started examining how you morally deal with employees who are uneducated, who have no background at all. People were marking an X for their paycheck 
And so it, it started me examining how we truly value people versus technology in the workplace. When we were investing multi-millions in technology, but we weren't investing virtually anything in employee development. Yet these same uneducated employees were, were operating multi-million dollar pieces of equipment. And so from an ethical standpoint, I think it was more of a moral obligation to treat these people better is what led me into this area. So back then when you were working in industry or working in organizations, what sort of ethical issues did you see in the workplace? The biggest ethical issue that I saw was that because of these employees' lack of education, they weren't afforded just moral and ethical courtesies of being treated fairly with regard to their pay, with regard to the, the manual labor and the extensiveness of it. I saw employees using their mouths as pipettes in a lab when there were bulbs that you could order to replace that. And so just those minuscule things that were common inside of um, higher education learning institutions, they weren't afforded to regular everyday employees who were making their companies millions of dollars. And I actually had a VP ask me, did I care more about the employees than I cared about management? And at that point in my career, I was like, I didn't know there was two different sides. I thought it was all the employees working together to make the company better. I didn't realize it was a side of management versus employees when I was asking for tools and resources for employees. And so I guess from that perspective, that type of treatment was what I saw more than some of the compliance issues versus just the common decency issues of treating employees like human beings versus inanimate objects. So in a situation like that, where you, you're clearly seeing things happen in the organization that you see as ethical issues or you see as moral issues, do you get a sense that company leadership saw it the same way? As in, were they seeing ethical moral issues or were they seeing it differently? I don't think they were seeing it as moral or ethical issues. I think they were seeing it as these employees work for us. This is what it takes to do the job. Our focus is getting the product out the door. Personal problems of employees aren't our problem because at that time you didn't have a shortage of labor. You had people looking for jobs. You were in a boom time where you were producing product left and right. And so employees were seen as dispensable. Unlike today where you got employees that are learning that my life is more important. I want more money than um, what I'm currently being paid. And so they're starting to stand up for their right. Back then it was just, I need a job. I'm gonna do whatever management says and management knew that. So they used that power of control to continue. I don't think it was thought of as an ethical or moral issue. It was just common to the performance in that particular industry at that particular time. You were talking a little earlier about, you mentioned compliance. And I think in, in my experience, there can be some confusion between what people see as a workplace legal issue, like a compliance legal issue, 
and what is a workplace ethical issue. So I'm wondering what you see as the difference between ethical and legal issues. I see the legal issues are the local, state, federal laws that are on the books that companies must adhere to or the requirements of OSHA. I know when you do safety training with the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, OSHA, they train you that when you see the word shall, S-H-A-L-L, in any documentation, that's not up for discussion. You must do that to be in compliance with federal laws or federal regulations. And so there is a distinct difference, but not all employees are trained to know that difference. So you have everyday working employees who may think that what they see as a ethical issue, they see it as a legal issue instead. And so that confusion creates chaos in the workplace sometimes because they think, oh, I'm disabled. So I need to be treated a certain way on the job. But the law says that the company only has to make reasonable accommodation. And what the employee sees as reasonable and the employer sees as reasonable aren't the same thing in a lot of cases. And so employees think they have a case against compliance when it's really not a case because the company can prove that it's, they've done a reasonable accommodation. It may not be enough for what the employee wants, but it becomes a point of contention. And a lot of times, you know, and this is speaking from my management background, if the employee is seen as a troublemaker by bringing up those type of issues, then their um, tenure with the organization will not be very long. So a lot of employees just endure versus challenging or either um, they don't know how to challenge the law from a federal perspective, meaning going through and having Congress or somebody in Congress rewrite the laws or somebody at the state level rewrite or modify a law because it takes so long to do. And so a lot of things that people see as legal and, and illegal in the workplace are just company policies or um, interpretation of the law and policy versus actual laws. And I think it becomes an ethical issue for leadership because when you have a one-off case that you can accommodate somebody and you choose not to, you can create um, negative, a negative environment for all employees because you don't know how that employee interacts with all your other employees. And so if they see you mis mistreat one employee, they think that you're gonna do the same thing to them should they get in that situation. So that impacts morale. And, and I guess morale is a great word because when you act immorally as a leader, it impacts the morale of your workplace, even if it's not a legal issue. It, it becomes, a policy issue that could be an easy change that you choose not to do, and it creates a huge problem inside your organization. Right. You've written a lot on ethics and also on diversity. And so kind of continuing with the previous question around the difference between ethics and legal issues, I'm wondering, do you view diversity as an ethical issue or as a legal issue? 
I view diversity as an ethical issue. The reason I view it as an ethical issue is because in America, there's no specific law in the book that says an organization has to have diversity. The word diversity is not used in a legal sense. You have the compliance laws that can be used to determine the diversity of your organization workforce, but there's no law that says, oh, this, you have to have diversity. You have to follow the Civil Rights Act. You have to follow the Pregnancy Act. You have to follow different um, laws that are on the books that can create more women and more minorities inside your organization, but it doesn't say diversity. So from a moral and ethical perspective, that's where I view diversity. Because even if you look at the laws that try to get people to comply with diversity, it always says you have to prove intent. And so that's looking at the heart. How can you prove what's in the intent of someone's heart and mind? And that's why most diversity cases end up in settlements and all of that, because you cannot prove it. You can't prove what's in somebody's heart. So that makes it even more of a moral and valuing issue. How do you value another human being? How do you morally treat another human being the way you want to be treated? So when I looked at my research of valuing people and technology in the workplace, which derived out of all of these experiences, I looked at diversity from the perspective of how can you truly value uh, another person or an employee in the workplace if you don't see them? You marginalize them because they're disabled. You marginalize them because they're over the age of 40. You marginalize them because they're a disabled veteran or, or a woman or for whatever reason that's they're in a protected class. And so when you do that, I see it as not being diversely intelligent because you need those, everybody to make up the success of your organization. But when you can't see each individual person in your workplace, you definitely can't develop them because how do you develop someone that you're ignoring? And so that makes it an ethical issue for me more so than a legal issue, because that human being is inside your organization. And if you're gonna marginalize them, that's a choice. That's a leadership choice to not value and develop each and every employee that works for you. It sounds like there's a real attitudinal change or maybe like a, a mind shift in changing from seeing diversity as an as a legal issue to seeing it as a as an ethical one but it, it can be tough to change minds and tough to change attitudes so in, in your experience how do you go about encouraging leadership to see diversity as an ethical issue that's where i am in my research right now when i first started looking at valuing people and technology in the workplace i came up with a term called workforce interpersonnel diversity. And I was saying, if you have a call center and you have a thousand employees that you pay the exact same rate of pay, let's say $10 an hour, but you have one employee that is just 
keeping customers happy hand over fist. You're making tons of money off of those interactions. But you got the, another employee over here that just comes to work and collect their $10. They make it through each shift. That's it. How do you value each one of those people the same by paying them the same rate of pay? And so from that perspective, I came up with the five common values between people and technology, their location value, use value, maintenance, modification, and time value. So that person who's bringing you so much money, is their location value truly bringing value to your organization versus the person who's over there just making it through the shift? Are they truly on the right jobs? Are they truly doing the work that you need for your organization to succeed? And the way that came about in most organizations, we would have, you get two reprimands on the third reprimand, you're fired. Or if you got those two reprimands, you couldn't switch jobs. Let's say that person that's just coming to work every day, they're not happy with that job. You've reprimanded them twice, but another job comes up that they are perfect fit for, and they could do a wonderful job for your organization. You can't move that person into that new job because they've got the two reprimands. And so you end up ultimately firing them because their improvement, their performance isn't going to improve. So you've lost an employee that could have been valuable to you in another location. And it may have been because they may have had a disability, a speech impediment, anything as far as dealing with customers, but you didn't adhere to any of that because you didn't truly understand the value of that employee from their location, their use, their maintenance, modification, and time value to you. And so from a from that perspective, that's where I see diversity is you've got to be able to see the entire person that works for you and then leverage that to enhance your organization. And that becomes a talent management strategy. But you wouldn't have ever been able to see that person if you weren't diversity intelligent. Because any other time, if that person had a disability, you marginalize them up front. So you never even acknowledge their existence to help you grow in the first place. So now I'm looking at how do you use this talent management strategy or workforce interpersonal diversity, because now that you're diversity intelligent enough to know that each individual employee is different and not just different because of their color or their race or their disability or their age, but they're different in every aspect of them as a human being because no one person is the same. Then now that you can see them and, and explore their value to your organization, you can ethically make a decision about that person based on objective facts versus your subjective opinion of them based on who you perceive them to be without truly measuring what they bring to your organization. It feels like HRD is in a good position to be able to raise awareness of this within organizations, is in a good position to be able to help leadership to see diversity as an ethical issue and to help employees on ethics in general. So I'm wondering what advice you have for HRD professionals about how to go about playing that role within organizations. I wrote a book on ethical and legal issues in human resource development. And I did a table of all the statutes and laws around diversity 
around and protect the class groups and the policies inside organizations that are currently on the books at the federal and some of them state and local levels. And I looked at it from the perspective of how ATD and, and HRD can truly play a role from an administrative perspective, from a business, understanding the business perspective, from a leadership perspective, from a training perspective. And so when you began to look at ethics, there are a, a laws such as Sarbanes-Oxley, and it's on the list in the book. And you look at how can HRD play a role in helping organizations execute Sarbanes-Oxley. That means HRD professionals, first of all, they got to look within themselves and make sure that they're not being unethical in their decisions of who gets to be trained and why they're being trained and why they're being developed and who's being helped with their career development, how they are helping the organization truly value all of their employees. So first it becomes the introspective role of an HRD professional to be as objective as they can be with all employees. Because uh, some of the issues that come up when I, tra I teach this is that um, leadership development program. There are some leadership development programs that are very, very niche and HRD professionals, some of them have a, a role in choosing who can go through different leadership training. And it, if HRD has a voice at the table, they need to use that voice to speak up for the development of diversity inside organization. They need to um, speak up for compliance with the laws that are already on the books. And that's what my diversity intelligence is all about is putting diversity in the context of the per protect the class groups and federal laws and mandates that are already on the books in the United States of America, where you should already be doing this. And it's already proven not to be being done because of the EEOC lawsuits, the um, labor Department of Labor settlements when companies are in violation, the personal lawsuits, the class action lawsuits. You have so much evidence that it's not being done. And my research has proven that it's not being done. And it's not only not being done by the leadership, but you got some HRD professionals that are not doing it either. They not may not be receiving the visibility because they're not in the same leadership role as the CEOs or the people that are making those decisions, but they are inside the core of the organization where the employee meets up with the management and the leadership, and they have to have the willpower to stand up and say, are you doing this because it's a professional decision or are you doing this because it's a personal decision against this employee, whatever decision is being made? And they have to determine and train more on the ethical impact of it. I have a doctoral student that's actually work, finishing up a dissertation around the ethical training that their employees receive and how they interact with their customers when they come into the organization. And so HRD professionals have a huge role to play. And I don't think, you know, I'm not criticizing what they're currently doing, but I don't think it's ever been a thought for them to interact diversity and ethics because I've, I've not seen a lot of research around that, but my research has led me directly to that. And it was not on my agenda to go to diversity intelligence, 
But when I got to the point of how do I start measuring how you value each individual employee, I was like, there's no way as a leader you can um, measure the value of an employee if you're marginalizing them because of one of the protected class categories. And that's the same thing for an HRD professional. You cannot develop every employee in the organization if you can't see them and not marginalize them. So HRD professionals can help by recognizing their own viewpoints and then sharing that with trainers and integrating diversity as a part of your leadership development training programs. And a lot of organizations don't do that. They have ethical statements, they have all sorts of statements, but when you go and read those statements, diversity historically hadn't been in the past since George Floyd, a lot of them are starting to integrate it in, but they need to truly not just make it a line item on their statements, but an integral part of their organization. And I think HRD professionals can help with that. Well, Karitha, that sounds like a tremendous call to action for HRD professionals and probably a good way of wrapping up this particular segment of the episode. So thank you so much indeed for our conversation today. You're welcome. So please stay with us and we'll have you back later in the episode for our group conversation with Peter and Khalil. But for the time being, thank you so much indeed. Thank you. My third guest for the episode is Dr. Khalil M. Durrani, Associate Professor and Program Chair for the Educational Human Resource Development Program at Texas A&M University since 2014. His research is situated in the domain of international human resource development with a focus on integrating theory and practice in different cultures and contexts, including learning organizations, leadership and talent development, ethics, social corporate responsibility, employee engagement, and transfer of learning. His research conceptualizes HRD as a strategic framework for connecting interdisciplinary teams, networks, and systems to help them collaborate and work together to address social, health, and environmental complex problems and challenges. He has published his research in leading HRD journals, such as The Learning Organization, Advances in Developing Human Resources, Human Resource Development International, International Journal of Human Resource Management, and the European Journal of Training and Development. Hi, Khalil. Welcome to the Human Resource Development Masterclass. It's great to have you here in our episode focused on ethics in HRD. Thank you. Thank you, Darren, for uh, hosting this. This is a very important initiative for us, and I really appreciate uh, being here to talk about uh, ethics in HRD. In my conversations with Peter and Claritha, we spoke about how they first got interested in this topic. And so I'd like to start our conversation in the same way by exploring how, how you first became interested in ethics. It all depends on my experiences uh, throughout my life. My experiences shape my identity, uh, my character, my behavior, uh, my values. So all of these accumulated to, uh, to bring all the uh, ethical uh, behaviors that I bring to work as a human being, as a professor, and as a practitioner in the field of HRD. 
For example, I'm originally from Lebanon. It's a country that's uh, devastated by war and conflict between religious factions. Uh, those uh, those factions killed so many innocent people in the name of religion. And uh, my parents wanted to shelter us, me and my siblings, from that ugly war. Um, so they have a, a loss of effect on uh, how we were raised and... Uh, they wanted us to know what's right from wrong. They wanted us to uh, do the right thing all the time. Also, uh, my work experience, when I started working uh, back in my early 20s, back in Lebanon, I, I witnessed uh, several ethical misconducts, uh, whether that was in terms of wasta, which is like personal connections, uh, favoritism, uh, that usually leads to uh, corruption. Uh, also, uh, in terms of uh, nepotism, gender discrimination, and uh, things uh, that really were unethical behavior in the workplace. And then uh, my experience in academia as a PhD student and as a professor, um, and what I liked about uh, being in a system that provides general standards of ethics or codes of ethics, that you feel comfortable operating within. So those are uh, different experiences growing up and my learning experience that uh, shaped my ethical behavior. From an HRD perspective, uh, I am in the profession, uh, to be honest with you, because of the age in human resource development. Uh, I am all for the human betterment component, the betterment of uh, personal and professional lives of individuals. Um, I am uh, of the same uh, school of thought that probably Dave McGuire represents that calls for HRD decision makers to embrace an ethics of care approach where we uh, can recenter the human at the heart of HRD. Uh, so all of that uh, shape who I am and what I stand for in terms of ethics and ethical behavior. So you talk there about your background in Lebanon and then your experiences in the United States. And, and I'm wondering, given your experience of working and living in different countries, have you seen HRD ethics vary between different countries and cultures? I can answer this question from uh, two different lenses, probably from a practitioner lens and from an academic lens. Um, from, an, from a practitioner lens, in general, the issue of uh, ethics appears when uh, employees have to make a decision between different alternatives, uh, like between good and bad, between uh, uh, like what's right and what's not. And they have to uh, apply their own code of ethics to decide between those decisions. Uh, sometimes things are not clear as white and black. They, they, they have to operate, employees have to operate in gray areas. So uh, for organizations, it's how HRD practitioners promote and practice uh, those moral principles, such as equity, human rights, fairness, diversity. So to give you an example, in my early 20s, I worked for a company that was newly founded in Lebanon. And at one point, the management decided to apply for uh, ISO quality management uh, certification, uh, most probably to hang it on the, uh, on the wall of, in the headquarters or uh, 
maybe because such an initiative most of the time is used in, as a marketing tool. Uh, and so they invited an outside consulting company to uh, document the production process and learn about employees' work issues, listen to their needs, and so on. I had to be present in some of these in interviews uh, because of my job title. Um, what astonished me was the uh, presence of one of the co-owners at the same time when the consultant was conducting the interview with our employees. And uh, those employees were not feeling comfortable talking about the issues and challenges at work or answering confidential and uh, sensitive questions. So the first thing was the presence of the co-owner in the meetings. And the second thing that the consultant did not do anything to correct that situation. Another uh, example is, is from my experience here in the United States. And I would compare this to uh, one of my siblings, my youngest sister application for, uh, for work. So when I applied for uh, my first job, I went to the interview and I noticed on one of the walls, I can add a flyer uh, to come meet the uh, uh, candidates for that job. And I saw the names of two other finalists for that position. I told my colleagues later on that I would never get this job because of I know those two other individuals and I believe they have way better qualifications than I did. But to my surprise, I was the one who, uh, who got the, that job. I didn't need a wasta, I didn't need the favoritism, or I didn't need anybody to, uh, talk, to talk on, on my behalf. Uh, and I said I would compare myself uh, to my sister. She's, uh, she's a medical doctor, and she's way smarter than me. When she applied for, her, uh, um, medic for the medical school uh, in Lebanon, uh, she, she had excellent grades, did excellent in the MCAT or the exam for uh, medical school entrance exam. She got really high grades. But then when the results came or first uh, round of results came out, she did not see her name among those accepted only because some others had uh, their uh, WASTA working for them and they got in. Uh, that was resolved with her, but I don't think she should have went through all that experience to get something that she earned or to, uh, to be accepted into a field that she highly qualifies for. So these are two examples uh, from, my, uh, from my work experience. Uh, and another example from uh, the academic work I, one time I invited um, one of our graduate students. Uh, she finished her PhD, I believe, in uh, Botswana. And she was talking about how she wanted to apply the IRB or to get a consent for uh, confidentiality with the individuals she interviewed. She was interviewing uh, older adult women leaders who were very successful as entrepreneurs. And when she asked them to sign the consent that she's not going to use their names, they objected to that, that they wanted to be known. They wanted people to hear and know their stories and know their real names. And that was uh, some kind of uh, a conflict between the U.S. system uh, of compliance and how other cultures look at uh, at research or how they want to be 
uh, acknowledge. So these are some of the uh, some of the examples that came to mind when you asked this uh, question, like how how can we uh, how HRD ethics vary between different cultures? I really like how your examples illustrate how ethics can impact somebody's life at a personal level and that ethics can be part of day-to-day living. And so I'm wondering how you've taken that and how you now use the topic of ethics to feed into your daily life as a researcher and as an educator. In my work, I, I do aspire every day to be a better human being. Uh, this does not mean that uh, I am perfect, but uh, I always aspire to do my best. I call my job as uh, that of uh, ethical care for students, for faculty, for staff. Uh, at the same time, work in academia exposes you to many situations where conflict of interest or ethical issues emerge regularly. Uh, and I always worry about uh, me missing a call or making a wrong decision. So I always try to uh, apply the code of ethics and standards in every situation I face. As for my research and work on ethics, uh, it actually started uh, with a conversation with one of my PhD students. Uh, his name is Amin Alizadeh. Uh, one day, one day he, uh, he was sitting in my office and he asked me a simple question. Uh, uh, why don't we teach an ethics course in our program? Uh, and that uh, triggered a set of questions. And his rationale was like, although HRD practitioners have a high interest in ethics-related topics, uh, surprisingly, many uh, HRD academic programs do not have a clear strategy uh, in their graduate level uh, to train professionals who can create a code of conduct or uh, deal with ethical dilemmas and confidentiality or confidently sustain uh, an ethical workplace. So we did uh, a review of different academic programs in the United States. We interviewed uh, 10 scholars uh, in the field who are interested or who wrote or who uh, did research on uh, ethical behavior in organizations and in academia. What we found that very, very few out of uh, 26 programs we reviewed that have graduate HRD programs, only a few of them uh, teach ethics as one of the courses. Uh, The majority of of those programs, I wouldn't say take it for granted, they do include ethical behavior and ethical case studies and uh, ethical teaching in their curriculum, but it's not a main topic that they teach in their curriculum. Uh, and this, uh, this our, our research was similar to uh, other research studies um, that, uh, that found that probably one in five uh, programs in the United States had the course related to ethics even though ethics education is one of the uh, HRD responsibilities in organizations. So uh, without understanding ethics, the students would not be able to find ethical shortfalls uh, when they enter the workplace. So that was the, the reason why I, 
I started doing research in, in human resource development, ethical behavior or ethics, and how, how can we strengthen uh, ethics among our students and uh, who would become future uh, practitioners. So you talked a bit there about how you use um, ethical standards in your own research and teaching. And I know that you are part of the group who worked on the most recent version of the AHRD ethical standards. So I'd kind of like to explore that a little, specifically like how important you feel it is for the profession to have ethical standards and maybe how those get built. It's very important to have ethical standards in our profession. And uh, those standards uh, provide guidance for HRD professionals when they engage in practice and research and consulting, uh, instruction, uh, whether facilitating instruction or uh, teaching. I was invited, I think in 2015, to be uh, a member uh, of the uh, group that reviewed the ethical standards that were uh, done in the late 90s. Uh, so we worked together, actually. Uh, we went to uh, different conferences. We, ha we held workshops. We uh, did focus groups in different uh, times and uh, regions, like here in the United States. Uh, at different conferences. Also, we uh, did a couple of international workshops and uh, focus groups. Uh, one was in England at the European uh, or University Forum of Human Resource Development Conference, and the other one was in uh, Morocco uh, at the Asia uh, HRD. It took us more than three years to, uh, to conduct this work. Uh, we had some challenges. Uh, whether cultural challenges, whether legal challenges. Uh, for example, one question I remember we were asked, uh, how can we impose those uh, standards of ethics? And we, we said we can't. This is an aspirational approach to, um, to HRD ethical behavior and programs that aspire to be ethical in their approaches, in their uh, teaching, in their research could take these seven uh, initiatives, we came up with seven initiatives, and try to apply them in their context and in their programs. At the end, it was, as I said, uh, we recommended that uh, for aspiring programs, ethics should be explicitly taught as one of the theories of HRD, and uh, it should be included, uh, whether in the program purpose, among the faculty, curriculum, students, uh, research, resources, and leadership and support. So these are, I said, seven uh, core areas, and these were the seven. Now, you mentioned that ethics isn't a topic that finds itself center stage in practice or in teaching. At the same time, you also stressed how important it is that people understand ethics and know how to respond in ethical situations. So, so I'm wondering what your advice is to an HRD professional on how to prepare for ethical situations that could come up at some point in their career. From an academic standpoint, programs uh, in general do not have an ethics course, as I mentioned, uh, to teach students ethics, uh, the codes, the standards, and what to do when ethical situations come across their careers. Uh, although we stress ethical behavior, when they conduct research, we don't stress it from a practitioner perspective. 
for example, at XAM, we offer a conflict management course that could uh, help a bit, but uh, we don't teach an ethics course. Uh, it's, uh, it's assumed like ethics is embedded in all our courses. So we expect our graduates to thrive in the workplace, uh, the workplace that has more than uh, 120 million Americans every day go uh, to their work every morning, uh, and almost half of them would experience some kind of conflict. Those conflict situations in many organizations uh, are not looked at because organizations, I'm, I'm not generalizing, but uh, usually organizations put profit before people. Uh, uh, and again, I'm not trying to paint a negative picture, but this is what it is. We face uh, uh, such situations in the real world. So I would, uh, I believe it is HRD's duty to uh, develop leaders, managers, and uh, other organizational members to behave ethically. Uh, like we need to prepare practitioners who promote ethical behavior as ethics and integrity are core values in our profession. And they should uh, guide behaviors of all organizational members. Uh, there are tools uh, or uh, the tools at disposal for HRD professionals like training programs, uh, leadership development, uh, and other programs can incorporate ethics into its structure and uh, can be delivered to the employees. Uh, but while HRD practitioners can promote ethics, uh, businesses are responsible for ensuring ethical practices and processes and everything that a manager or leader does because ethics means doing the right thing and uh, we see so many unethical outcomes everywhere. Uh, that said, my advice is uh, for HRD professionals uh, to facilitate uh, compliance-based ethics, have ethical codes in their organizations and promote ethical behavior. Uh, and uh, we can, we can, they can rely on research to support that because organizations with strong ethical codes and standards have less ethical issues than those who don't. Uh, that means organizations with, uh, with strong leadership that has no tolerance for uh, unethical behavior, uh, they have the least ethical misconducts. Well, Khalil, thank you so much indeed for our conversation today. I've really enjoyed talking about ethics with you. Thank you so much for uh, having me. I really appreciate uh, the time uh, you, you took to, uh, for this interview. I really appreciate it. Well, please stay with us and we'll have you back later in the episode for our group conversation with Peter and with Claritha. So thank you so much indeed. Up next, we have our group discussion where my guests are together to discuss their shared passion for the episode's topic. This discussion is brought to you thanks to the sponsorship support of the Educational Human Resource Development Program at Texas A&M University, where HRD is defined as the process of improving learning and performance in individual, group, and organizational contexts through domains of expertise such as lifelong learning, career development, training and development, and organizational development. Building on this definition, Texas A&M graduate programs prepare scholar practitioners for professional work settings 
as well as faculty positions in research universities. Their PhD is 72 credit hours, GRE not required, and Master's is 37 credit hours and offered both online and on campus. Recent graduates have departed for jobs as corporate and government trainers, directors, faculty members, administrators, curriculum designers and consultants. For more information, check out their website at eahr.tamu.edu. Welcome back to the HRD Masterclass Podcast. Our focus for this episode is ethics in HRD, and I've already met one-to-one with Peter Kachinka, Claritha Hughes, and Khalil Durrani. And for the final section of the episode, we're all together for our group chat. So welcome back, Peter, Claritha, and Khalil. Good to be back. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having us. So for our group discussion, I'd like to dig a little into some of the topics from your one-to-ones and also explore a couple of new ideas. And to start us off, I'd like to pick up on a topic that Khalil touched on in his conversation, which is that of ethical standards. Specifically, how can ethical standards be used in identifying ethical issues and then resolving them and whether there are limitations to how useful those standards are? In our profession, we need ethical standards to identify ethical issues. We need a guiding framework for making those ethical decisions. So as for how ethical standards can be used in identifying ethical issues and uh, then resolve them, uh, I believe uh, we first need to recognize the situation or the issue itself. Uh, Meaning, based on the ethical standards that we have, is the situation harmful? Is it harmful to the individual? Is it harmful to a group? Is it harmful to a community? And if yes, does it involve choosing between a good alternative and a bad alternative, between two good alternatives, between a bad alternative and another bad alternative? And then, and this is important in academia and our profession, we need to address the situation from an ethical perspective, meaning we are not talking if the situation is acceptable culturally, if it's acceptable scientifically, legally, or makes us feel feel good. And the ethical standards can keep us grounded in that sense. Uh, And this brings us to how or to the third step uh, in the process. We need to uh, collect uh, relevant facts about the situation from all actors involved and those who are affected by the situation or affected by the outcomes of the decision. And then we need to identify the different options of our action uh, based on the ethical standards and the options that best address uh, that situation, meaning best serving the community, provides least harm, treats people equally, respects the rights of all who have stakes, uh, make me as the decision maker or, uh, or a person involved, make me a better human. Uh, Fifth, we need to act on implementing that option. Uh, And as leaders in our profession, we can call for uh, reflection in action and reflection on action, uh, where we learn how the decision we made turned out, and then how we can grow and move from being who we are to becoming better human beings moving forward. What I would add to that is that the standards themselves have to be all-encompassing 
from a broad perspective of what ethics is and, and clearly outlines who those standards are for and who they are supportive of. Because sometimes you have the standards, but the standards are not clear. And it clearly doesn't represent all parties inside organizations. I've seen very few ethics standards that include diversity. And when you don't have those all-inclusive categories, it leads to misinformation and confusion about what you truly value because the standards are saying we value X, Y, and Z for our organization. Yeah, I've, I've written about, about ethics and um, to me, HRD is part of the broader um, field, if you will, or set of activities called human development. So I'm I'm very much in 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 line and attuned with with what both Claritha and and Khalil have said, but what I want to add is the the context. So in applied field, uh, we are really not talking about pure ethics, but uh, we are talking about applied ethics, business ethics, uh, medical ethics, ethics in engineering, and so on. So if we look at the broader system that our organizations and businesses operate in, we, at least in, in North America and in, in, in Western Europe, they operate within a capitalistic system. And this system has its own set of rules, its own set of values, such as private property, such as the, the role of the market to determine what is desirable and, and what not, free choice. In, against this background, organizations operate on a set of priorities that sometimes run counter to what we want them to have in terms of pure ethics. So, for example, we pay, I uh, think, close attention to the issue of work-life balance, right? And that's probably embraced by, by all of us. And you can make an ethical argument for, for work-life balance based on, on value of the individual, of the family, community, and so on. Well, if you work in investment banking, uh, work-life balance is basically gone out the window, right? So um, if you work your way up in an investment bank, you are expected to work 80, 90, 100 hours a week as condition of being employed. And so the idea of work-life balance takes um, the backseat to the broader system uh, requirements. And I think it's, it's this tension between ethical standards of what we would like to see and how the system operates based on self-interest and based on rules of competitive market economy, where the tension and the, the interest, I think, in our field comes in. And these tensions are oftentimes not easy to resolve. When I look at uh, ethical standards, it makes me realize from the, the breadth of them that there are a wide range of ethical situations that people could face as a professional. So I'm wondering which HRD ethical situations are often like the most challenging to address and why? When I look at the situations that are most often challenging to address, most of those situations fall around what people value. And you have personal ethics 
and you have business ethics. And personal ethics are what you bring individually into the workplace. And so the business ethics are supposed to be those that are agreed upon the beliefs, the norms, the goals, and the values that you have all collectively agreed upon. But there, when situations arise, sometimes the personal ethics are in conflict with the business ethics, even though everyone has said they agree around the business ethics. So the unique dimensions around ethics can create um, conflict that no one really has an answer to solve. It's that gray area or the unknown area. And so it makes it very challenging to address because no one truly has the answer. And why it's so important and so challenging is because so often there's a lack of communication of how do we sit down and address this issue. For example, you may have someone come into workplace and I dealt with this a lot when we were doing skill-based pay and we had elderly employees who weren't ready to learn something new or, or felt that they were too old to learn. And so we had to sit down with them and say, what would make this palatable for you to integrate into this system? And the ultimate answer became a grandfather clause where we grandfathered some in, some chose to participate in the program, others we grandfathered in, and we came to a happy medium. A lot of times, ethical situations aren't easy to solve because of a lack of understanding of different cultures, different belief systems, different norms. And when you think you're communicating, you're not. And it makes the situation extremely challenging. And, and HRD practitioners must do a self-assessment and ensure that they are developing people based on what the organization needs and what they're required to do instead of what they personally believe or personally think should be done. Because determine who to develop and why is, is very important in the workplace. Whether it is training and development, org development or career development, the determination of who, meaning employees or leaders, that you deem worthy to be trained or developed becomes an ethical situation for an HRD professional. And so in my research, I look at how do you truly value each individual in the workplace? And to be able to value that person, you have to have diversity intelligence to recognize the differences and leverage those differences as strengths rather than weaknesses and do it in a non-threatening way so that everybody becomes and feel as if they are part of the organization. And we have to look at ethical relativism, where are your decisions right or wrong, or, or are they purely personal and subjective? To be able to address the most challenging issues, I believe you have to be objective because it's never gonna be about you personally. Yeah, Clarita, I, I, I very much like your point of, um, I, I would call what, what you just described, value clarification. 
and I think it's certainly got its place in, um, in, in graduate programs, but also in, in, in organization development projects in, in companies. So really getting to sit with, with a group of managers and getting to the bottom, what, what are we doing? Why are we doing it? How does it represent our company? How does it aspire to the values that, that we em embrace as, as, as an organization? So to me, value clarification is one of the really important contributions that HRD uh, practitioners can and, and need to make to get out of, or to, to get some clarity around what priorities are and what, what course of action we should take. Yeah, I, 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 would, uh, I would agree with both of you. The only thing I would add uh, is uh, we are capitalists with, <laughs> with a heart, meaning that we need to take care of the organization but at the same time, uh, we need to take care of the individuals, and uh, and and sometimes that's not easy. Um, uh, there's always those uh, tensions uh, from being objective. How can you be objective uh, uh, when there's so much pressure to to do something uh, that 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 uh, that brings benefits to the organization, but not to the individuals? From the HRD ethical standards that I've seen, they seem to illustrate a wide range of potential ethical situations that HRD professionals could experience in their career. Of those, which situations do you feel are most common for HRD practitioners and HRD scholars? To me, a scholar is somebody who produces knowledge. So on the, on the practitioner side, when the practitioner, the HRD manager, HRD specialist in an organization produces knowledge and acts as a scholar, I oftentimes see that the principles of good social science research are given short shrift. And that's sometimes because of time pressure, sometimes because the, the person doesn't have the grounding in, 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 in social science research. And, and when that happens, I think we get poor results. And what I see particular are two or three areas that, that came to mind. The first one is to be careless with designing survey instrument and interview questions. So I've seen time and time again, large surveys on employee attitudes, work-life balance, um, satisfaction with, with coworkers and leaders. I see surveys designed out of, on, 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 uh, on, on their own, self-designed surveys. Oftentimes, there are only one or two questions addressing a specific dimension. And when, when that happens, we get instruments, survey instruments, interview questions that are not re reliable and, and not valid, right? So a piece of advice for practitioners always is look to the academic literature and look for existing instruments that have been validated that have been shown good, good inter-reliability and so on. The second problem with practitioner-based research or inter-organizational research, I think, is that of data privacy. Owners and sponsors of a survey or project really want to know who said what. And from an ethical point of view, that is just a huge violation of uh, the norms of, of social science research. And uh, I think it's really detrimental to further organization development projects in that, that organization. And the third problem that I oftentimes see is, is overly uh, generalizing the results. So say you may have survey results from say 50, 50 respondents 
And those 50 respondents or these 50 responses are then taken to be the penultimate truth on this issue. Uh, so not being aware of the limitations in terms of response bias and, and so on. Um, on the on the academic side, when we look at academic scholarship and research in in HRD, I see I see a couple of of, of problems, and and the most pervasive one, from my perspective, is that many times academics academic researchers, whether they're grad students or even faculty members, um, don't take into account the broader political and power environment in an organization. Uh, this is particularly uh, pervasive in quantitative research when we pull out sort of very, very discrete elements of organizational behavior and relate them to something else. Uh, if we don't take into account the fact that organizations are intensely political, that is power-based environments where conflicting values exist, where um, pressures that managers are under oftentimes lead to behavior that is less than desired. If we don't move this, this high pressure, high intensity environment that makes up an organization into account, then we are not doing good research. My answer uh, from a practitioner point of view, uh, yes, I agree. Privacy is one thing unethical leadership and the abuse of uh, leadership authority, that's very important. Uh, workplace culture, workplace civility and incivility, that comes to mind as well. Uh, I would uh, refer you to uh, different works uh, of my colleague, Zhao Wang, who published uh, uh, some uh, good work in the, on the workplace incivility, toxic workplace environment. Another issue I think that uh, that's important in the workplace is employee discrimination and harassment uh, and the microaggressions like, uh, for example, the group think mentality and the group norms. Uh, also, probably uh, both my colleagues mentioned this uh, performance appraisal. Uh, that's one of the ethical issues that uh, occurs uh, in, uh, in organizations. And I, I have to give you a quick example from uh, my culture, from, from Lebanon. Uh, I never like performed an assessment for any of my professors or teachers until I arrived in the United States. Um, that's, that said, uh, that mentality in our leadership, in our uh, being the authoritarian person or the authority led to so much um, corruption and that led at one point to a very big explosion last year in Beirut, Lebanon, just because of neglect and uh, leadership authority that they don't have any checks and balances. I agree with both Khalil and Peter. The way I teach this and prepare doctoral students to deal with it is I use Patricia McLaglin's 13 Dilemmas that are likely to occur for HRD professionals. And I ask my students to describe their perception of the 13 items. And I ask them, are they still relevant to HRD professionals today? And I'll go through them quickly. They are maintaining appropriate level of confidentiality, saying no to inappropriate requests, showing respect for copyrights, sources, and intellectual property, 
ensuring truth in claims, data, and recommendations, balancing organizational and individual needs and interests, ensuring customer and user involvement, participation, and ownership, avoiding conflicts of interest, managing personal biases, showing respect for interest in and representation of individual and population differences, making the intervention appropriate to customers or users' needs, being sensitive to the direct and indirect effects of intervention and acting to address negative consequences, pricing or costing products or services fairly and using power appropriately. And that's from page 55 of her article that was in TD Magazine in 1989. And, you know, to a person, most of my students agree with these dilemmas that they are still relevant today. And we have to have a starting point, as Khalil just stated, to begin to help students. And so in my courses, that's my starting point. I put it on the values and decision-making, and it's the very first question I ask them. It sounds like that that's really helpful in terms of um, HRD practitioners knowing what to look for. And a list like that is really helpful because it, it opens the practitioner's eyes to uh, the variety, the range of situations that they could face from an ethical perspective. Um, what I was wondering is, once one of those actually hits them, what are the first steps that we'd recommend a practitioner takes to actually address one of those ethical situations? As somebody who's worked in administration for, for a good number of years before becoming an academic, and as somebody who's run projects and been involved in, in administration at the university level, I've sort of learned to be patient with with organizations and and, and those those around me. Uh, oftentimes, what is what we might consider unethical is is really the result of not thinking clearly, of being pressured or feeling pressured to take action, of of having outside expectations, and so rather than labeling it as personal shortcoming. Um, I think we need to understand what led to the decision of a manager, for example, to be less than truthful with, with, with her employees, with her subordinates, um, to shortchange customers and, and so on. And so it's, it's a little bit detective work. Um, I, I don't think the, the role of HRD um, practitioners, HRD managers who are employees, would there be that of the, the ethics police? Uh, I think that just creates an adversarial relationship and would in many instances simply lead to the HRD person who sort of takes the high stance uh, being, being dismissed and not being viewed as, as relevant. But framing, framing the organization, understanding what led to the decision that, that is less than um, desirable, that perhaps is not ethical, uh, engaging in a conversation uh, with 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 a great degree of of respect and humility um, and and tact uh, with with the person, um, I think would would be good good first step. Uh, that's not to say that that would be effective in all cases. So if there's a clear violation of of company standards or policies, 
then uh, whistleblower protection applies and that, that needs to be called out. But in many cases, it's this small incremental kind of erosions of ethical standards and values that, that take place. And as HRD practitioners, again, understanding, recognizing, recognizing the situation, uh, analyzing it, and then devising a, a, a path of action to take some kind of um, remedy, talking to the people involved, um, finding out what led to the, the situation, finding out what, what can be done to make it better. Now, in the extreme case, uh, the, the HRD practitioner whose values really run counter to what the organization is, 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 is how the organization is acting needs to leave. Know that that would be the professional responsibility of the person to remove himself from the situation, whether it's as an employee or as a uh, as a consultant. We've unfortunately reached the end of our time today, but a big thank you to uh, all three of you for such an interesting conversation and for being a part of the whole episode in our discussion on ethics in HRD. Thank you all so much indeed. Yeah, good. Thank you. Thanks. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode. It was wonderful spending time with Peter, Claritha and Khalil. If you enjoyed this episode, check out our others. There were 11 episodes in the first season and we're releasing a further 11 here in the second. Between them, they provide access to conversations with over 50 leading HRD scholars. New episodes release weekly. To learn more about the episode, check out hrdmasterclass.com. And to learn about the Academy of Human Resource Development, check out ahrd.org. By becoming a member, you can access extra bonus materials not included in the podcast. Also, don't forget to look into our sponsors. HRD Online at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. Check out their website at go.illinois.edu slash hrdonline and the Educational Human Resource Development Program at Texas A&M University. To find out more, visit eahr.tamu.edu. I'm looking forward to being with you in our next episode. Until then, this is Darren Short, signing off from the HRD Masterclass. HRD Masterclass Podcast is brought to you by the Academy of Human Resource Development and is a production of allbypodcast.com.